Hey everybody, welcome to the Transitional Space Podcast. This is Ari. This week we have a pretty cool episode for y'all. We have my friend Ash. She is a, a nurse. And we're going to talk about all kinds of medical stuff. I'm going to ask her some awkward questions. Get some advice on how to do your own injections. So it's she's a really cool person. And it's a I think it's a pretty cool interview. So hopefully I'll enjoy that. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to talk about Trans Lifeline. Uh, you know, Trans Lifeline like, isn't sponsoring this. Or, uh, you know, we have five listeners. I don't even think that's enough for a sponsor. But yeah, Trans Lifeline is really cool. It, for lack of a better way of describing it, it's kind of like a... You know how they have the, the suicide hotlines and then the crisis hotlines, which is... And then they have the Veterans Crisis Line, which are really great programs. But the cool thing about, and Trans Lifeline is similar to that. So like if you're in crisis, if you need somebody to vent to, that type of thing, you can call Trans Lifeline. But the cool thing about Trans Lifeline is that the people who staff, you know, the people that you call are all trans. So they're all you know, they have some background in, and, you know, some of the experiences that, that, that we kind of go through as, you know, trans folks. So, yeah, Trans Lifeline, a really great resource. I used to, I volunteered for Trans Lifeline a few years ago and took calls for them. So if anybody's looking for volunteer work, Trans Lifeline is a great, a great way to do it. Back when I did it, you know, you can basically log on anytime, day or night. So you're able to do your volunteer work from home. Just, you know, sign on your computer, say I'm available. And then you take calls through your phone. And which is perfect, you know, during the whole like, Corona thing. So, but yeah, Trans Lifeline, Crisis Line, staffed by trans folks. Really cool. I highly recommend it. I used it myself. You know, I used to see my, well, I still see my therapist every two weeks. So for me, sometimes in that off week that I didn't see my therapist, you know, I'd have, I'd want to have somebody, sometimes I needed somebody who was, who had an objective way rather than a subjective, like talking to my friends or something. I needed a, somebody who didn't have anything vested in me, you know, to kind of talk things out through. So trans I find was perfect for that for me, but yeah. In the U.S., um, in, in Freedomville, the phone number is 877-565-8860. And uh, in Canada, the phone number is 877-330-6366. And the website is translifeline.org. And... Um, Sorry, European pals, Australian pals, Asian pals, South American pals, Antarctic pals. Um, I, it, Trans Lifeline isn't available in y'all's countries. I don't think. I'm pretty sure it's not. But we do have some resources resources uh, in the Discord that are European focused. So um, to get the link for the Discord, go to facebook.com slash transitional space. The link should be in the posted message there. And while you're there, check out some of the events we have coming up. We have the rap group, we have journal journaling club, and we have some AMAs, some Discord AMAs with a bunch of cool people. So yeah, that's about all I have. And um, hope y'all enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to the Transitional Space Podcast. And tonight, our guest is a nurse who happens to be trans. Her name is Ash. Welcome. Hey there. How's it going? Not too bad. Uh, First night off after four days in the ICU, so I'm enjoying it. Holy cow. (laughs) Y'all do like 12-hour shifts? Yeah, always. Well, at least 12 hours. (laughs) Oh, I don't miss. I used to be not to brag or anything, but I used to be an EMT, and um, 
I don't miss those long. Like I still work in healthcare now, mm-hmm. but the long hours they they killed me. No, I can imagine. I hated it, but do what you gotta do. Yeah. <laughs> um. So so you're a nurse, right? Uh. What, I know there's like a thousand different types of nurses <laughs> out there. Um. I know, and I've worked in healthcare, and a lot of people who don't know anything about healthcare know that there's a thousand different types. Uh, what type are you? Um, so registered nurse, I work in a neurotrauma ICU. I'm a charge nurse there most of the time. And in particular, I went on and got an advanced certification. So I'm a CCRN, critical care registered nurse. Awesome. And then neurotrauma, uh, what is that? Is that like something to do with, um, what would that (laughs) part entail? Uh, well, we, in my particular hospital, honestly, we take everything but the heart attacks. But our specialty is trauma, and also we're a certified stroke center. And quite often, oh. you know, brain bleeds and car accidents tend to go hand in hand. So that's kind of our thing. Awesome. Um, is your um, are you a level one uh, center or? Uh, well, we trauma? take level one patients. By primarily, but we're technically a level two. The only difference is we're not a teaching hospital. We have all the other types of accreditation we need for a level one, but we don't, we're not affiliated with a university program. So we can't technically get level one status. Oh, okay. That's a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long have you been doing that for? Five years now. Five, awesome. And did you, and I'm, um, when we were talking before, you mentioned that you're a charge nurse. Mm-hmm. Which in medical talk, like you're like the, you're the boss. Um, how long did it take to get to that point from, from starting out? Oh, I think they first started having me doing about two to two and a half years in. So. Awesome. Yeah. Do, you, do you find it's better being, being in charge or do you think it's like, would you rather just let somebody else have, like, was it a bit more than you could like? It's pretty intense. I, you know, I can recall the first time I was charged that, you know, someone came up to me and I was remarking like, oh, you know, they start about the same time I did. And I started looking through the schedule for the night and everyone else I realized is newer than I am by a long shot. I suddenly realized, oh, crap, I'm the person that's <laughs> supposed to know what they're doing. Ooh, this is gonna, <laughs> this is bad. Uh, I've since gotten used to it. Honestly, I, I enjoy the role just because you know, I like being able to go around putting out the fires, so to speak. It's where all the, you know, I, I get to stay where all the interesting stuff is happening. So, yeah. And you're the person, like when something's going wrong or they need help, mm-hmm. like it feels nice to be the person that, that everybody turns to. Yeah, it, it took a while to get to the point where I felt comfortable with it. But I think it's similar to what I tell when I precept students um, when, when they come up to do getting their RN is that, you know, a lot of them say they, they could imagine doing ICU right away because they, they just feel like they'd be in over their head. They feel uncomfortable. And my number one piece of advice for them is always the same. If you're starting off in an ICU and within the first year you think you know what you're doing, quit because you're going to get someone killed. Uh, a certain level of discomfort, uh, you know, a little bit of, of humility about what you know is pretty critical in in this field. So, you know, you just kind of have to roll with the punches and have a good team and know who to ask and not be afraid to do so. All right. Um, yeah. Speaking of school, though, um, do you mind if I ask? Did you? Uh, did you like? Were you already like? in your transition or like quote unquote, like finish with your transition before you started school or like, how did that work out? No. Well, I, I came out once before, but that's another longer story. Um, at the time I started nursing school, no, I had not uh, completely in the closet. And I was about two years, three, no, oh gosh, about three years into working on this unit. So they all knew me very well under uh, one guys. And uh, I came out actually working there and transitioned over the last two years on the unit. And it has been a, actually an amazingly rewarding experience. Well, like, so like, did you, um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of this kind of through because like we're, I, I worked in healthcare too, or I work in healthcare still. And um, I wasn't an EMT when I, when I transitioned, but I was working in mental health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
at a at a long term facility. So we have um so when I came out, I had to to do a big a big group with all of my patients, at, you know, and kind of come out to every and we had all the staff around too. So I came out to all of them at once. Oh, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it worked out good because like. You know, it wasn't like I saw different patients every day. Mm-hmm. I saw I have the same set of patients for three to six months. Um, when you're working in in nursing, like especially like in a hospital setting like mm-hmm. that, you might see a patient for a few days, and then like did so. Did you have to like come out to different patients, like well, or how did that work? It was actually interesting. I, you know, one of the reasons I think nursing is a great job for people who are in transition, at least in the kind of field I'm in, was, you know, I was, I'm someone, you know, it's not for everybody, but I did want to, you know, people hate the word, but pass. I wanted to not have to worry about people constantly uh, uh, noticing. So mm-hmm. it was interesting. I never really, in terms of the patients, quote unquote, came out to any of them because I had a steady stream of new strangers and family every day, every week. And, you know, I just got to the point, you know, that's part of the reason that I, I changed my name to, to Ashley or Ash is it's fairly gender neutral. So I just wasn't giving away the game. I just kind of let them, you know, early on, whatever pronouns or sort of way they wanted to go with it, I just kind of let them at first. And it was really kind of a comforting barometer to me because, you know, every once in a while, suddenly a she popped up or a ma'am and it got more frequent. And then, you know, it's one thing when people you care about that are worried about your feelings say these things. But when the angry uh, uh, patient with uh, neural issues who's watching Fox News in their room and screaming at the television if you go into their room and they say she, her, they're not doing it because they're trying to make you feel good. <laughs> it was honestly yeah. their first impression. So, you know, when those little, those little yeah. wins came along, it was, you know, pretty, uh, give me a lot of confidence. That's like the ultimate like way to tell if somebody's hug boxing you or not is like to work in healthcare. Yes, yes, definitely. So. Fortunately, I didn't have to come out in mass to my uh, coworkers like you did. That sounds absolutely nerve wracking. <laughs> Yeah, mine was um I I told my um my clinical director and basically we sat down um our you know psychiatrists and then our medical doc you know and then all the nursing staff and then all like the mental health techs and yeah it was <laughs> plus all the patients too yeah, no so. pressure <laughs> yeah I I was a chicken so. I had no intention to come out at first. I had this big long plan and like based on like how long I thought it'd be before people would notice. And uh, we didn't make it that far before all the rumors started. No one actually got, you know, figured it out, but there was lots of, of weird rumors. There was, uh, I had developed an eating disorder. Uh, you know, I'd, I had gotten divorced from my wife uh, earlier, but just before the transition, not, not because of the transition, but for other unfortunate reasons. Uh, and everyone, uh, my favorite was the nurses for some reason thought that, uh, getting divorced had turned me gay and that somehow made my appearance change. I'm not, not really sure how that works. <laughs> I would expect more from nurses, but, um, but uh, when they started noticing that something was up, I kind of felt pressured to do it. So I, uh, I went through, get, I got permission. I talked to my managers first, of course, and I got talked to HR and made sure they were all on my side before I did it. But then my, my method of coming out was I just wrote a letter and posted on this internal blog we have. And I promptly took two weeks of vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I just kind of let the smoke settle first. And then it came back I'm like, Hey guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take some vacation, do some laser hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, like, all right. So, before I ask any um, any of these uh, questions yeah. that I have from our Discord, um, and then I also wanted to ask about about schooling and how you how you chose to be or like why you chose to be a nurse mm-hmm. too. But just to kind of kick us off or start us off into that direction, um, everybody when they hear 
you know, you, that you've been an EMT or you've been a nurse or you've been in mental health, they always ask, what is your, uh, your most strange story at working as a nurse? Oh, goodness. Uh, what can I do without violating HIPAA? <laughs> be my concern. Uh, God, I've seen it all. I think uh, the weirdest moment for me, you know, being in the unit we're in, we often get people who are having to detox from various substances. And I remember one evening in particular, uh, I had a gentleman, we knew he was going to go through this and he was aware too. And he was very lucid start of the day and we were doing great. He was very polite, started getting a little weirder as time went on. And there was at one point where he started to like straight up lose it and started hallucinating and became very paranoid and was trying to leave. And we, you know, we couldn't cause he was, you know, a danger to himself. And so we yeah. had to, you know, I had to like, okay, you know, I don't want to have to do this, but if, if you don't, you know, comply with directions, I'm going to have to put you in restraints. And he started, you know, getting obviously more and more defensive about that. And I knew he was going to take a swing. So I got in a bunch of people. There was like five of us in the room. And I kid you not, he began to, with all seriousness, tell the other people that they had to leave now because if they didn't, they were going to go to hell because I was a satanic priest and I uh, was actually going to uh, do a human sacrifice of him that evening. And they were all going to be implicated in it. I mean, it was, he was so sincere about it too. It was just like, oh, geez. Four, four hours earlier, oh, we were guy. just hanging out and talking about our kids. But now. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. If I had a dollar for every time I thought somebody was a satanic yeah, priest. You know. They pop up every once in a while. Lots of gory stuff too, but I'm afraid anything I say on that would probably be uh, you'd be able to identify that too easily. So, yeah, yeah. So, questions? Um, what you got for me? Do you want? All right. Do you well, want to know the nursing? Why I did it? Is that was that the first question? Um, well, that was a question that I had. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, I. I always think it's kind of cool just being able to help people. That's why I went into healthcare. Um, and I transitioned from the <laughs> transition again. I transitioned from being an EMT over into the mental mm -hmm. health field, partly because of um, injuries. And, um, you know, I had a, like a, bo a bilateral establisher, like both of my, the sockets of my oh, hips yeah. for anybody that both broke. L1 through L3, spinal fractures, um, my aorta oh, ruptured, skull. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need a different line of work. That's what's causing that. <laughs> well, it wasn't causing that, but uh, it definitely um, was making it harder and harder to do yeah, that I type of imagine. work, you know, like. Um, but, yeah, so now working in mental health, still get to help out people, still get to make a difference, you know, still get to feel good about it. So was that kind of the same like, did you have that same kind of mentality going into nursing or was it like, you know, nurses get paid the big bucks go out, or was it like a picture of both or what the big bucks? I, I'm, I'm missing a check. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I do all right, but uh, yes, part of it. I mean, I, I do tend to be someone who uh, helps to the point of, of hurting myself sometimes even, but um, the, the main kind of, uh, hook for me for nursing was actually my mom. So she was a critical care nurse as well, eventually an MP now. Um, and oh. actually she's both the reason I'm in nursing and the reason I didn't become a nurse. So this is actually my second career before I ever went to nursing school. I already had a master's degree, but you know, I need to, oh, in what? Oh, uh, philosophy. I specialized in, in bioethics. And before you laugh, I didn't intend to get a job in philosophy. That wasn't the plan. I was, it was a pre-law track. I just, I hated the law school portion so much. I just wanted to die. So I ended up finishing the philosophy half of it. And then I'm like, oh crap, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, I, I can't laugh at that. Or I can't. Laugh oh, at oh the con joke. We went with the con joke. Yeah. I love it. I had to. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
the reason I didn't become a nurse right away wasn't because I didn't think I'd want to do it. It's just that I kind of saw my mom as a superhero. I mean, she'd come home and, and tell me all these incredibly gruesome stories about stuff she had done and she had saved so-and-so's life. And I'm like, holy, holy shit, I can't do that. Uh, so I, you know, tried to do something else. And eventually I found myself after that whole debacle, like, well, I got to have a new career now. What am I going to do? You know, maybe, maybe I could do nursing school. Maybe I could survive there. I should at least give it a try. And I now know, as much as I appreciate everything I learned with my, my philosophy days, I really should have gone to nursing school first. This was definitely where I was supposed to be. Awesome. That's a cool, like, I like that kind of story because, like, it's it's not, you don't have the, um, like, the savior complex going straight out of it, but you still have the kind of, I like that. That's pretty cool. So what does the Discord have? Oh, go and ahead. How, oh, um, I was just going to ask, how hard was uh, nursing school, like, for you? Like, cause I hear lots of horror stories, lots of, like, war stories yeah. from people that, that say it's, it's uh, rough, They are right? absolutely right. So everyone can say that about their own degree, but I have the unique perspective of having gone to an entirely different uh, educational track. And as someone who's actually gone through and gotten through grad school, I would gladly go through my master's degree again than go through nursing school again. Nursing school was by hands down more stressful and more difficult. <laughs> My, my psychology degree was really, really intense. I had so much free time that I didn't need this. No, I'm sorry, that was a bad <laughs> joke. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah, but uh, they're not—they're not kidding. It—it um, uh, it was really challenging. I finished my grad school with a 3.97 GPA, and that's you know they don't—they don't round up in grad school. And uh, honestly, I think I got like a 3.2 something in nursing school. Like I was. I was fighting for every damn point in there. It was rough. Yeah. All right. So I'm looking at my, uh, at the discord at my, well, at our discord, the transitional space discord. And there are some questions yeah, for you. Um, hmm. All right. So first one <clears throat> is about intake mm -hmm. questions. Um, Everybody knows when you go to see a doctor, a psychiatrist, psychologist, if you come to see me at a big rec mm -hmm. facility, um, they're going to ask some demographic questions. They're going to ask all kinds of stuff. They're going to ask silly questions like what's your sex or what's your yeah. gender or both. So right, here's my, here's my go-to. Um, and this is probably not the best practice, the best advice, but I've done this for years and I've look how it turned <laughs> out. So bad joke again. But um when whenever they ask like when was your last uh cycle, mm -hmm. when was your last period? I always say it was two weeks ago. And then by GYN always laughs at me because she's been I'm not, that was another <laughs> bad joke. Um, but yeah, I always say if it, if if I if I think it doesn't have anything to do with the doctor that I'm seeing, like obviously like um, my psychiatrist probably doesn't need to know when my yeah. last cycle was, but they didn't have that on the question. So I, my go-to is just, it yeah. was two weeks ago. Uh, what do you think is, do you think that's a, a pretty safe, like, I mean, it depends to... what you're going to, if you're seeing a, a therapist, yeah, that's not really pertinent information for your treatment. If you're coming into the ICU, you know, I, I kind of need to know more what's going on. It can be an issue. Um, you know, even just planning surgeries, you know, if your anatomy is different than what's expected, that could be a thing. Um, so, you know, judge accordingly, if it's going to be something that is going to be all pertinent for your treatment, um, if you're having a legitimate hormone imbalance, some sort of corticosteroid issue, your whole endocrine system is going to be affected by that. So even if, you know, you might not think firsthand whether or not you know, your, your status would be something we need to know that actually can come to play if you're on high dose hormones. Um, so yeah, just be careful. Just, just use your head about it. I mean, I've only been in that situation once and I was entirely unprepared for it when it happened. 
I, I had a workman's comp injury and I went over to the place and, you know, started going to the thing and I hadn't even thought about it. You know, I just, I've hurt my shoulder. I I'm just want some pain medicine and go home. And, you know, she asked the question, you know, when was your last cycle? I'm like, I don't have one. And I thought that would be the end of it. Like, obviously she knows what's up, but she has to ask the question. Oh, that was kind of nice of her. And she just goes, oh, uh, hysterectomy? Looking at me, you seem a little young. I'm like, no. And I looked at her and it just dawned on me, she doesn't know. Like that was a a very surprising moment. And I I said, no, I'm, I'm transgender. I kid you not, she's also a nurse. She started like stuttering, like I um oh I I didn't I okay well I'll doctor will be in, uh, just a second <laughs> and left, and then true story, about two or three minutes later it comes walking back in the room. She goes, I forgot to take your vitals. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently it's thunder enough. Uh, so you, you know it can be an uncomfortable situation if they don't need to know that sincerely. They don't need to know that. That's that's a personal piece of information, but. Healthcare is one field where it might be something that is important. So, I mean, my hospital handles it. If you come in, um, get admitted, you know, if you're conscious when you're admitted anyway, uh, there is a, you know, forms all over the place that actually says if your uh, gender is different from that of your birth, you know, please inform us. We don't have a method to put it in the chart directly or on your wristband necessarily, but what we do is uh, fill out this form that goes on the front of the chart. So we know ahead of time, you know, that there's different names or different pronouns going on that that's, that's covered. So we don't have to keep asking and put somebody on a spot like that or out them in front of people that they shouldn't be outed in front of. So I really appreciate that myself. Right. So um, on, that actually brings up another question on the, um, mm-hmm. on the wristband. Does it say, um for for gender do they put what's on yes, your chart what on your or... charts. when i uh, go in and get admitted for my blood work at my <laughs> hospital it says f on there so okay so like so basically if you've had your um gender changed like <clears throat> excuse me like legally through like um on your driver's license for example once you give them your driver's license at the front the F is going to follow Correct. follow you around. Okay, cool. Um, let me see what else she she's following mm-hmm. up with here, and I know that there's times that like we have this where at where I work too, that you know you you don't know how the doctor or even how the staff, how the nursing staff, how the front desk people are gonna mm-hmm. are gonna respond. Would do you have like a if say if you were coming in as a patient and you were coming you weren't going to the hospital that you worked at you were going to some new clinic mm-hmm. for whatever reason is there any tips of how you would like approach would you like slide a, a, a sticky note like would you like pass a note like your hand in drugs so that the receptionist saying like this is my like say like all of your legal mm-hmm. stuff wasn't changed yet and you still had your dead name yeah. on all of your documents. How would you let that place know that you wanted to be um, called by Ash in the in the waiting well, room? In terms of uh, tips versus what I would do, maybe not the mm-hmm. same thing. And in, in my case, what I did is um, I lack that thing. Uh, I think they call it shame. And so when I was put on those spots, I you know I made no bones about it. I just said it, and you know I wasn't going to. And I think that actually helped. You know, because I didn't do it in a wishy-washy way, I was, you know, firm about all these things. You know, I, I never really had a problem. Like, they would just take that and go with it. Um, so would that work all the time? Is that the right way for everybody? Obviously not. A lot of people just, you know, that, that, that's a big ask to, uh, to do that. Um, I... You know, I would just say it's important for us to get that sort of respect that we need and deserve. I would say also in terms of normalizing trans visibility and normalizing us in general so that this conversation doesn't need to happen anymore, that 
you know, those of us on this this early wave of it need to um, just be honest and just kind of have to be a little bit brave. And just remember by you doing that, you're changing things a little bit and that someday someone coming after you is not going to have to have this conversation. Yeah. And I think like for people listening to it, it's probably a good thing to, um, I'm sure you oh, know yeah. what CEUs are. Uh, so in, in the healthcare, and I'm sure probably that you've, you probably have to do a lot more than I do, but um, I just actually did a whole eight hours of CEU blocks with uh, LGBT focus mm -hmm. and transgender focus and how to approach trans clients. So like it is getting, it's slowly but surely getting mm -hmm. a little better. And the people who work in healthcare, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, probably are getting a lot more educated on, on definitely, trans definitely. I mean, stuff. we, yeah, our, our uh, continuing learning includes uh, a section on that as well now. And I'm very glad to see it. Uh, you know, I think people, until they experience it, I, you know, a lot of times I wonder how many people even realize how many trans folk they have already met and just didn't know. Like, it's not like we suddenly just materialized in the last <laughs> couple of years. We, we've been around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's another question? Um, all right. So what to do if you have errors in your medical records, especially ones that you never knew of? but you only find out when you're transferring to a new doctor. And I'm thinking what they're trying to ask is like, say I see one doctor and I get my medical records sent over to another doctor. Cause I'm seeing this sure. new doctor for whatever reason. And now I, I suddenly have an M where an F should be, or that's, that's what I'm thinking they're asking, or I have my dead name where my, where my uh, legal name or my, mm -hmm. my preferred name should be. Um, but what's the best way to go about um, once again just be direct that. and um, it situations like that aren't going to be improved by uh, letting it slide so to speak you you need to as, as hard as it can be sometimes just you know directly to the doctor and if they give you any sort of issue well they're a crappy doctor and you might consider finding a new one but if that's not a reasonable possibility you know chain of command go up you know, find the next person in the hospital, find the, if you're in a hospital, ask for the, the house supervisor, for instance, you know, uh, they will, yeah. I guarantee you, you go high enough and someone's going to start sweating bullets about litigation and HR and they are going to help you out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what if it's for a, an actual medical mm -hmm. error? Like, uh, um, I'm missing my right leg and they said I need to have ankle surgery on my right, on my right ankle. Um, what, what, what about well, that? Kind I mean, of stuff? If, if, if it's part of your current medical record and, you know, I'm doing my intake and I, you know, they, they tell me, I, you know, when I take someone, a new patient, I have to go through the medical history. And if it doesn't line up, I'm editing it right there on the spot. Don't make them think like it's, don't, don't ever let them make you think like it's some impossible permanent record that can't be changed nowadays it's all electronic medic records and it's right there and you better believe it can be changed. It's just find the person with the access to it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me see what else she has for us. Okay. So then for aller allergies, um, I think I know what my answer would be to this one, but I'm going to see if it lines up with yours. So what happens if we have, if we think we have an allergy that like we suspect we have an allergy, say every time I drink this, this Sprite that I, oh, actually this bowel prep, every time I drink this bowel prep that I have next to me, it mm -hmm. makes me cough up a little bit. It does. Just, like, I mean, <laughs> everyone has an allergy. <laughs> um, so say I, I have mm -hmm. an allergic reaction to something and, but it was never like formally diagnosed by a doctor. Um, so we should we put down that? Should we write that information down yeah, for the medical? I don't people or ask for um you know an allergist test before when you come in. You tell me you had a reaction to such and such medication. I put that on on the chart because we're not going to be messing around. Now, granted, you know if you tell me you're allergic to Percocet, but Norco is fine for you. Um, hmm, <laughs> you're both 
kind of in the same ballpark <laughs> guy, but whatever we can, we'll work around that. But, you know, I'm not going to, I don't question people if they tell me they have that sort of information. If, if, you know, you tell me you're, it's like pain. Um, you're the only expert on that. And I'm not here to uh, yeah. diagnose whether or not you have some like Munchausen's syndrome going on and you're a hypochondriac. I'm here to treat you. And if there's a chance something I could give you could possibly cause you harm, I'm not going to take that risk. Yeah, that sounds like a, like a good. Um, all right. So the next question is, what would she do or how would she react as a nurse? I know how I'd, how I'd react as a counselor, but if someone comes to you for a normal issue, say I go to, to, uh, your, um, to your hospital and I'm seeing you and I'm looking for my pains coming back, um, Tylenol, ibuprofen, mm -hmm. that isn't working, mm -hmm. and I'm asking for some Dilaudid. But you see I have some fresh uh, self-harm scars on my on mm -hmm. my thigh or my wrist or wherever. What would you do? In um, that I'm going to ask the physician for uh, more pain medicine to cover your pain. That's kind of one of those things that they're, they're teaching more and more in nursing school and in medicine in general in that, you know, there's been a lot of issues, yes, with you know, pain clinics overprescribing opioids and people got a little skittish about prescribing them, which is serious and needs to be taken as such. However, there was kind of a phenomenon going on where people would come in and they just be written off right off the bat, like, oh, they they knew the word dilated. Obviously they've been they've got it before, so they must be a drug seeker. So we're we're not gonna give that to them or we'll give them like a tiny bit of the dose that we normally give. And you know, the data has shown quite convincingly that that is not the best practice to use, that that's actually causing people harm. So the only expert on what pain is, is the individual experiencing it. If you were in pain and, you know, your heart rate's up and I've got physiological markers for it, I'm not going to question that. I'm going to ask for more pain medicine. Now we might start looking at what sort of adjuvant medications, what sort of combinations we could do, what, what other treks could we do that would allow us to not give you, you know, Dilaudid per se, or at least get you away from that, wean you off that. But I mean, it's another question if you're going home on those medications. Th those are really the issues where people are having dependency issues and are, are causing issues with, with self-harm and whatnot. Um, if you're in acute care like I am, I'm I'm treating things acutely and that we can make a plan of care before you leave the hospital to start to get you help for other things. If if you've self-harmed and I noticed that, that's a whole different can of worms than what, what pain medication I'm gonna be able to give you. Whenever somebody says acute care, I always think of like <laughs> a trans cat girl. I haven't like, worn any cat ears to work yet. Acute care. So. <laughs> Oh, you're missing out. I wore some for Halloween. My my patients loved it. Sexy nurse. Um, so what about like, <laughs> uh, what about if somebody was say, um, all right, so that they're not say the person isn't drug seeking at all. Um, say that they're uh, there to see you for like they have a cold or or they have like the flu or something, um, and you see self harm scars on them. Uh, what would you do if you if you see the self harm? Like I think this person is asking more specifically yeah, for the yeah. the self harm um, stuff. Well, I can't in uh, legally even speaking or morally uh, ignore that. That's a different process, though. That means I'm I'll be contact the doctor. We're going to collaborate. We'll decide if we need to do a psych consult. If the, there's fresh self harm, it has anything to do with your current diagnosis while you're you're in the hospital with. You know, we start to question whether or not are you a danger to yourself, and if necessary, I many times we've I've, I've gotten seventy-two hour holds on patients, and they're not particularly happy with me about it. But you know, if it saves their life, at least gives a chance to maybe get them some help, and, and that's the end goal. Is you see that, and people are afraid they're going to be punished, they're going to have the medical system come down on them or judge them. No, if I see that. 
you know, I, I want to be able to help. Why did that happen to you? Because we have resources, not just the drugs or the surgeons, but we have, you know, access to psych consults and therapy and networks of, of different social workers that can get you all sorts of help, not just in the hospital, but afterwards and try to find, find out what's going on that caused you to be there and get you out of the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or you can come I've hang out with plenty me. Plenty of people to and... behavioral health long term. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so let's see what else do we have. It's actually cool that the pain met people are going because um, I rattled off some of my injuries to you, and you know I've been dealing with pain for a long time, and I went to a pain management doctor who just totally dismissed me as med seeking, and I'm like. I wanted to like, you know, say, lady, I'm not like, I, you know, yeah, I'm it's, not. It's such a fine no. line. Once again, in acute care, I'm not necessarily looking at that horizon. I know when people go home, though, that's where those pain management dogs come into place. And a lot of them are, are just a little yeah. gun shy now because there's been several uh, doctors just in my state alone that, excuse me, have a. Uh, been brought up on charges because of you know they were legally prescribing these medications but and it was all above the board fda approved but they still got lawsuits brought against them because of the the level of of medications medications they're putting out or complications because of those medications and so everyone kind of clammed up for a while no one it wasn't necessarily they uh didn't think giving you the pain medicine might not help you it's just they can't risk getting sued again. So that was their motivation, although they wouldn't say that out loud. And that was unfortunate. Yeah. I think it's starting to, the pendulum swinging the other way and maybe we'll find kind of the, the proper happy medium here. So let's see. Uh, next one is what are some side effects of testosterone blockers well, it depends which one and you're on what all do they um, do? the most common one prescribed in the united states is spironolactone it is uh yeah it's a hell of a medicine i actually got off of it really quickly myself but it's here's the thing guys we don't give that necessarily uh, in any other shape or form because its primary use is blocking testosterone. That's actually a, a nasty side effect of the pill. It was originally, it's, it's made to lower blood pressure. If you have too much fluid on and your blood pressure is too high, we're changing your corticosteroids uh, and causing you to pee out that water. It, it changes your, your salt potassium balance. And it just so happens that some of your testosterone is produced by the kidneys and it's involved in that whole endocrine system. And as a side effect, it happens to block testosterone production. And that's actually like, you know, the warning they had back in the day because they were giving it to guys who had high blood pressure and they'd end up with, you know, ED because they took Spiro. Um, so we're taking it in reverse. We're taking it because we're looking to get the side effect and our side effects are all the really dangerous blood pressure issues that uh, you, you took it originally for. Um, I actually switched over to a different one uh, very early on. I was doing my research on it in general, what other things uh, could be done. I went to, uh, I, th I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, bicalutamide. Um, very, yeah. So it's kind of cool. I recommend people one. check it out. It's, um, it's not a testosterone blocker. It's not going to and it's not going to stop production of testosterone. So while you're on it, if you have your blood work done, your testosterone is going to look like whatever it was beforehand. It was originally designed as a drug for uh, men with uh, prostate issues, particularly prostate cancer, because they'd have overproduction of that testosterone. It was causing downstream issues. They would take this medicine, and what it does is it's competitive for the receptor sites that testosterone uses. So if you take it, it can effectively block all function of the testosterone. You can have ridiculously high testosterone levels in your system, and it's not going to do anything because the bicalutamide is taking over all the receptor sites for it. Um, it has 
you know, like any medication, you do have to worry about your liver panels, but it's metabolized fairly easily. If you can handle the rest of the HRT protocol, you can probably handle this as well. It doesn't have any of those blood pressure side effects, salt cravings, no urinary issues. So that is fantastic. Um, and for me, actually, it was beneficial because um, I was also one of those lucky people that when I took the oral HRT, the, the estradiol, um, it, when it goes through your, fur, your, your liver the first time, your hepatic metabolism, some people are much better at breaking it down into estrone than others. And I was one of those lucky girls. I was taking the oral and it was doing absolutely nothing for me. And I finally had them check my estrone level and it was like ridiculously off the charts. I'm just really good at that. So my strategy, I switched mm -hmm. over to the shots and I wanted to raise my estrogen levels to the point where the Leydig cells that produce testosterone shut down naturally. And the benefit of taking that bicalutamide was since it didn't actually drop my testosterone levels, I could actually, when I did my blood work, monitor how effective I was at doing that. Because the bicalutamide wasn't changing that number. The only thing it would was my estrogen level. So I definitely recommend people check it out. That actually brings me to another question. There's that, there's that uh, common trope that excess estrogen converts to testosterone. Is that? It can. What, however, what do you think about that? Here's the thing. The data that's driving HRT protocols is decades and decades old and was barely studied to begin with. And the medications that we use now aren't even the same things that most of the protocol levels are based off of. We unfortunately, there's just no one doing really well controlled studies of HRT practice and looking how it affects different populations differently, how it different levels, which might, might have once been unsafe because we we're using synthetic estradiol versus now bioidentical estradiol have changed or what sort of uh, results can can come of it you know we just do not know every hrt practitioner right now is pretty much either a taking the endocrine society's word as as writ and just giving it to you and not having any argument about it or they're just flying by the seat of their pants right now <laughs> so there's just no good answer to it unfortunately and it's actually a tragedy quite honestly Yeah, the, the past couple of times I've had to um, go into into hospital, uh, my attending doctors at the hospital basically, I was prescribing my own. They were like, "Just tell me what you need, and I'll and and I'll That's get it for you." So they didn't. With mine, it's been a collaborative <laughs> process because as a nurse, I can get my blood drawn for free. I've been kind of the guinea pig. So we, we went through a lot of different, you know, we start with a two week and down to a five day regimen and different dose levels, trying to fine tune it. And so my dose is a rather uh, unusual one, but it's managed to keep my, my levels right where I need them. So, so mm -hmm. yeah. So speaking of, um, yeah. Speaking of estrogen, mm -hmm. estrogen, uh, del estrogen, estrogen injections, where do you give your, um, un, you probably have plenty mm -hmm. of friends who can give them for yeah, you if you I, need I to, do but my do you give yourself I, I do your mine own, and or? I do my girlfriend's. <laughs> I, I just good old vastus lateralis, the oh. big old muscle in your leg. It's, you know, we don't have to be trying to like reach around and stab yourself in the butt. It's just annoying. So yeah, I just do the big, long, ugly looking needle and stick it down in there. <laughs> um, this has come up in our discord a few times too. What is uh preferred? Like I try to get the biggest, like the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the smallest needle possible because <laughs> I'm, I'm a wimp, you know, I want, <laughs> if they made a hundred gauge, I would use it. <laughs> you know, I, I want the smallest one possible. So like, how but how long um how big do you do, I do an inch and a half intramuscular do an inch and a so i need an inch and a half how long do you um if you get the smaller size ones those are usually we use them for sub q injections and it just you can inject mm -hmm. uh estradiol uh valerate sub q but i from what i understand is it breaks down quicker it gets absorbed quicker so 
I don't like to. I like to stick with the IM injections, and you need the big long one for that. In terms of gauge, I tend to use a 22 or a 25. Um, I like to go the small ones as well, and because it's but it comes with a cost. I mean, it's in a very viscous medium, so you put it through a 25 gauge needle, and it's really hard to push. But you know what? You know, you pick your battles. Yeah. And then, so when you're injecting yourself, do you uh, do you do any special? Do you just kind of one, two, three, bam, or do you? And then once you get it in, do you do you aspirate at all? How like what what is your kind of your um? What's your process for? Do you like light candles and do that kind of stuff too? What's your for me, entire process? When I go to work, I do this hundred times yourself? a day kind of thing. So I just get it over with and do it. As for the aspiration, um, I've heard some mixed values on that in terms of like, yeah, you definitely, it would be bad if you got it directly in the vein, you bolus the whole dose in there and you manage to get it all in there because then you're worried about, you know, that traveling along and getting back to the lungs. That, that can be an issue. Um, however, the chances of that happening are rather slim and the chances of you effectively aspirating to even check are are kind of difficult. I mean, honestly, we don't in in critical care we don't tend to do the aspiration on an IM injection. We just hit it and go. Someone you know taking a swing at us. I'm not going to check to make sure I wasn't mm-hmm. in the vessel when I hit you. Held all. <laughs> I'm just gonna you're you're getting that stuff. You're a little vitamin H yeah. and night night. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I I don't have a big ritual to it. I just do it like I do anyone else at work and just end up stabbing myself instead of someone else. <laughs> I do. Um, I do the complete opposite. I'm a big baby. So I like, I sit it on my skin and I'm just sitting there chilling and I'm just like hoping that I just slowly, slowly press it in without See, noticing. Me, I think that would make it so much worse. Um, <laughs> so that's how I like <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I, it feels that, I don't know. I just can't like stab it right in there. Like with, when I would, when I had to do that, when I was in the military and we had to give shots all the time, it was, uh, it was, it's easy to stab somebody else, but it's don't not get so me wrong. easy. I, you know, I do it all the time. I do it to myself. Out. There is just this fundamental primal sense of you're not supposed to put things in your leg that deep. That's just, it just is wrong. <laughs> so I still feel that, but. Yeah, I think it. Yeah. I, I would be even more uncomfortable if I drew it out. So, sure. And then we have a question that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. If there's any blood that comes out, um, mm-hmm. say you you've done your injection, what I like to do is I kind of keep the needle in there for a couple extra hail marys while while I'm <laughs> squeam, squeamishing squeamishing. I just keep it in there a little bit longer. That way I try to get as much out as possible. Um, But once you, once you uh, remove the needle from your leg, um, if there's any blood that comes out, is that a bad thing? You likely nicked a vein Uh, going through that, Um, which, you know, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, Just remember you are doing a depot shot, which means you're actually depositing a small lump of this stuff in your muscle. Mm -hmm. And it needs to kind of form and crystallize in there. So don't, when if you see blood, like normally your thought is I'm bleeding, I've got an injury, I'm going to hold pressure. Don't put a lot of pressure on that because you're going to end up breaking down the site and dispersing the, the, depo, the, the depot of medicine itself. Just very light pressure, a little Band-Aid, that's it. It's, it's not the end of the world. You'll be okay. Okay, uh, that was that was close. I thought I was gonna bleed out for a moment there. Um, what else do we have on here? If there's any, all right. So say another question. Say I give myself an injection. No blood comes out. Everything's good. But a little bit of my um, of my uh, mm-hmm. medication itself pops out. Uh, was there something that I've we did wrong that, on that part? No, or? there's nothing you did wrong. There's not much you can do to uh, avoid it either. And, you know, sometimes if you're seeing that, that clear fluid, it might not even be the medicine per se. It very well could just be serous fluid as well. So don't don't worry too much about it. 
I think most of the time when I see it, I just didn't realize when I was, you know, aspirating the needle and, and clearing it that, um, you know, I might have got a little drop of the the medication on the outside of the needle and it actually dripped down. I think it just was coating the outside. So you stab it in, you pull it out, it's left behind on the skin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, may, that makes sense. So yeah, I should I don't probably like stop like dipping my finger into it and like drink. <laughs> All right. So my last few yeah, questions, okay. I, I know we've been yapping for close to an hour now and <laughs> I don't have the ability to do breaks because I'm working with, with minimal, Can't um, do breaks and taking working with minimal technology you are a brave for soul. now. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> and I had a coffee this morning. Uh, uh, well, an oh, ice cream dear. coffee earlier, my last meal. Yeah. yeah so um, what you got for me? I'm hanging in there. So, um, is it okay if I? I know it's like it's always taboo to ask um, about surgeries and stuff for, like, you know, what surgeries we've like trans people have had. But I feel like we're like lifelong friends now. So, um, is it okay if I ask? Have you had any any surgeries? But because I was gonna follow that up with, what would you like mm -hmm. as a nurse? Like, how would you? prep for that but like um have you gone no through uh, bottom surgery or i've you know i try not to ask other people but i've made a bit of a um online persona of being very open with my transition so that other people can learn from it so i have absolutely nothing i'm hiding anymore about that so no mm -hmm. i have not had the surgeries yet i have a surgery date for it um, I've been going through this process of, of narrowing it down, oh, awesome. the, the surgeon and getting insurance to make it happen. And finally, uh, coming April, I'm having both top and bottom surgery and the same procedure. Yeah. Let's hope it still comes. Oh, nice. Congratulations. A few, uh, things that are going on in my life, which are causing trouble in that regard. But that is uh, another day, another story. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. May I ask? Um, it, it, you can totally shut me down too. Um, but Doctor Catherine Gass, what surgeon you chose? Mm -hmm. I I'd only yes, I don't think I've researched her. Uh, you know, I'd only come across her and research a little bit. Uh, what I had heard was quite good, and I had a lot of anecdotal information that she was doing quite well. However, I was going to go to Doctor Gallagher, and Doctor Gallagher moved to Miami which was mm -hmm. too far for me to want to travel to. And, you know, her office left behind a list of surgeons that she trusted. You know, if, if you're, you can't come see me in Miami, here's the people that I would send you to. And it just so happens Dr. Gass was on that list. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. I, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm not that I'm some ancient, like, I, I didn't trans transition back like in the 1700s mm -hmm. or anything, but it seemed like when I did my surgery, there was only one person. Uh, well, there was like that lady that was up mm -hmm. in the Northeast. I think she's in Pennsylvania oh, wow. or something, but I went to Dr. Bauer. So like yeah. I'm coming from Florida all the way to, to San Francisco for my surgery, but it seems like there's now a lot more. There is. There definitely a lot is. More surgeries there's that different are even that. techniques available now. In fact, so. there was a particular surgeon I wanted to go to. Um, she had actually trained with Dr. Bowers at one point, if I understand correctly, because um, of a new technique that she's using. However, of course, they wouldn't accept my insurance there. So I was out of luck. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Mm -hmm. So with those with those surgeries, um, I know what all I had to do for like surgery prep. But what what would you recommend? Like, you know, like early early stages of surgery prep. You know, all the way until like the mm -hmm. day before. And and I know they they give you lots of instructions. Mm -hmm. You have to drink like I'm drinking now. Yeah. Um, I have I'm having surgery for something totally different, but yeah. they give you this uh, lovely bowel prep that you have to drink. Um, but what would you like suggest like come as from somebody who's you know working as a nurse like um as far as that kind of stuff like uh, prepping yourself really, for surgery you know beyond following the directions there's not a whole lot to it um 
you know, there's what do you have? What are you going to do to take care of yourself psychologically? Is what I'd be worrying about because in terms of preparing physically, you know, if you're at the point you're already taking bowel prep, it's too late to do some of the things you need to have done. Which, of course, making sure you've had, um, if you're having bottom surgery, having enough hair clearance removed that you can uh, a follicle scrape is going to be effective for you. Uh, obviously, with any surgery, making sure you're in as good as health as possible. If you have any pre-diabetes, you need to get that stuff under control. You need to uh, have your A1C in check entirely if possible. You need to have your BMI down as best you can because, you know, that's going to affect your recovery and your healing and even just your physical healthiness. You know, you're going to be down for the count for a good while afterwards and how fast you can bounce back is going to depend on what state you were when you went into it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I had my, my surgery not too long after I had that motorcycle accident where I got all those injuries. No, for, so no, that's been your route, um, but... Definitely don't want to be in that situation. And A1C yeah, again, that's, uh, monitoring that looks like your, what diabetes, um, blood sugar. It's, it takes a look at the hemoglobin in your blood because it allows you to track an average over a long period of time of how your blood sugar trends. I can check you right now and you have anything to eat and your blood sugar is low, but you might mm -hmm. actually usually run like in the 160s or something and you're diabetic and just don't know it. And A1C will kind of give you a three month average if you do the, the tests properly and fast properly for it. So you can see what you're really kind of hanging out at. So if you're you're got an A1C above six, you're in in bad shape. You're, you need to get that taken care of. <laughs> so okay, yeah. All right, and then actually to wrap up, I think I'm going to go back to the um, mm -hmm. to the estrogen, and I know like we were talking earlier about that. You know, estrogen like levels are are different, and mm -hmm. a lot of the data is, you know, from years past, and it might not be totally accurate. But what are some good like, you know, of course everybody's going to be different. Is there any like um, uh, shooting like um, I don't know points that we should shoot oh, for? Like, I had the answer. To that a range question. that, that we should all in critical care anymore. Uh... <laughs> No, unfortunately, I don't know. In fact, I suspect that <laughs> the whole idea that there is a, a tight target range that you're supposed to be in may be a misnomer, if my experience has anything to do with it. Um, I think that it's going to, you know, your endocrine system is incredibly complex and is interfaced with all sorts of other factors in your health. And there's all sorts of uh, genetic phenotypic issues that we're, we don't even really totally understand at this point. I mean, two people who don't take hormones, aren't transgender, um, can have wildly different um, sort of uh, patterns of sex hormones sometimes. So I think the only, the real answer is going to be that HRT is something that's going to have to be very closely tailored to an individual patient. And unfortunately, our healthcare system and the way insurance works, you know, isn't going to allow people to do what I did and go every couple of weeks and every month and so on and so forth, getting blood tests done until you've, you know, finely tuned your, your hormone levels to a point that you're getting the results you're looking for. Um, so, yeah. I, I suspect that we can have levels that are much higher than what the endocrine society um, allows for. Those levels were created, um, were set down in the 90s, and the concern was too high of a level, and it has an increased risk of blood clots. And yes, you do have risk of clotting even today. However, when they did that, that's when you essentially were taking birth control pills, and a lot of the hormones even given to cis women for that were synthetic hormones, sometimes even equine hormones, and those carry a huge clotting risk. Today, if you're a woman and you get uh, um, a pack of birth control, it does not have those in it. It's bioidentical hormones. And that's exactly what's in uh, your, your tiny little estradiol pills and in your violet estradiol valerate is biosynthetic. And so 
the drugs we're giving are vastly different than what those levels were based on. And as for what levels, they don't want you to go like what? They're, they're targeting like 120, 150, tops, your E2 level. Well, you realize mm -hmm. during a normal menstrual cycle, uh, a assigned female at birth woman is going into 800 on a regular basis every month. And let's not talk about pregnancy. They're, they're four or 5,000 is their E2 level. And, you know, they, women aren't just dropping dead every time they get pregnant. So I suspect that those numbers are overly conservative and possibly, you know, I did not have results that I felt comfortable with in terms of my transition until I got my levels much higher. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'll probably a lot of probably similar for a lot of us. And then also too, it's also like, you know, it's easy to blame the oh, yeah. the hormone levels. Too it's it's really rushed for that. You it's, have, it's but there's a whole we just other don't have the data. in there. We really don't. All right. So before I let you go, um, like again, like because we're using this old technology, as soon as I. As soon as I sign us off, it's going to hang up on you. Yeah. So I'm, I, I've been, I apologize. I'm my first rodeo. So I, I'm how it goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, you were telling me before we started recording that you're yeah. um, I'm starting I'm, I'm an IG right now. I have some uh, different ideas in development. And in order for me to, I'm, I'm new to cinematography. I'm still kind of getting my, my uh, hands around it. And to kind of practice, mm. I decided to start doing some of my Instagram platform as an IGTV kind of Q&A right now, just to get kind of comfortable with what sort of thing I should do in front of the camera, how I should sound, get practice using the uh, editing software and whatnot. So, yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, is it okay yeah. if, um, uh, absolutely. do you so want to plug your Instagram? Instagram is at transnursehere. Uh, yeah, you can definitely follow me there. And I have very in-depth over the last couple of years documented my transition. If you want to see where I came from to where I am now, most people are a little shocked. I feel like I'm not where I want to be per se, but I am very proud of how far I've come. Um, I do answer questions on there quite often in terms of like medical questions like this, at least as far as I can. Always the caveat that I am not a medical, I am not a, an actual doctor. I am a nurse and I can give you the best medical advice I can possibly give. But the ultimate medical advice is go see your doctor because, you know, I don't want to get sued. Um, and as for the IGTV, um, if anyone does want to send questions that uh, is interested in that, I set up a Gmail account, just transnursehere at gmail.com that I'm taking. Uh, messages and whatnot is, and coming up with ideas for what I'm going to talk about and blabber on on the camera. Awesome. Awesome. So, and thank you very, very much for, uh, you know, for, for hanging out mm -hmm. with me and, and letting me ask all these random, like random questions. Hey, and, you and went with the manual con jokes. Joke. There's nothing I, I really appreciate it. And yeah. <laughs> yes, and I lasted even while drinking bowel prep. This whole thing I've lasted for over an hour with you. But uh, nature, <laughs> nature is a yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe we can yeah. do this again in the in the future sometime. Nope. If you're, I, you if know you're where to find me. Not scared enough from this from this one. All right, awesome. So thank everybody for listening. Thank you, uh, Ash, for for being with us. And um, bye. Yeah, we'll see y'all. Uh